Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. As we get you ready for week five of the NFL season, the Patriots looking to get in the win column. Just one and three, of course, so far this season. So we're going to chat with Dan Miller the play-by-play voice of the Lions in just a little bit. We'll get into everything with this Lions team and what the Patriots need to worry about or maybe don't need to worry about. And then, of course, we'll get into the Matt Patricia stuff as well. But I want to start with this this week. I'm going to give you my five ingredients for how the Patriots pick up a win because, I mean, I can't cook for shit, but I put together the ingredients the Patriots need to win this game on Sunday. Okay. So number one is Patricia gets his revenge. And I kind of feel like, and I'll ask Dan Miller about this, I kind of feel like this has gone under the radar this week, that Matt Patricia is coaching against his former team, right? Because I understand why this has happened, of course, because basically here we've been worried about the Mac Jones situation, the Brian Hoyer situation. Is one of those guys going to be ready to go on Sunday rather than looking at, oh yeah, Patricia's coaching against his former team. It just kind of snuck up on us at the end of the week, right? So, look, I get it. He can't really get his revenge. He lost his head coaching position with the Detroit Lions, okay? And the Detroit Lions were better before Patricia got there. Not many coaches can do that, right? Where they were like a decent football team, 9-7, 9-7 under Jim Caldwell. Two years prior to Patricia getting there, they made it to the postseason. Patricia goes there. It turns into just a dumpster fire, right? So anyway, it would still be somewhat satisfying to get a win, even though as a head coach of the NFL, Patricia 13-29-1 in his time with the Lions, he did a bad job there. But a win Sunday has to feel at least a little bit satisfying for Patricia, right? I mean, it is the organization that fired him. And think about this, what the storyline could be on Sunday if the Patriots win. Matt Patricia, first of all, beats his former team. And I get it. The Lions defense sucks. We'll get into that in greater detail. 
But also, Bill's decision was so dumb to make Matt Patricia the offensive coordinator. Now, a lot of that is bared out so far this season, but at least for a week, right? If Patricia and the Patriots win this game on Sunday, even though the Lions have the worst defense in the league, if they pull this one off, we'll at least have to give them a little bit of credit after the game on Sunday, right? Because think about the circumstances. He's down to his third string quarterback, a guy that played at the FBS level for just one year. Remember, Bailey Zappi was at Houston Baptist. We chatted with his coach earlier this week. If you missed that, Tyson Helton, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the good stuff on Bailey Zappi. But the point being, he only played one year at Western Kentucky, three years at the sub-level, if you will. And now Patricia has a chance to win with that guy. And you know what Bill will do after the game, right? He'll praise Patricia. I know Bill doesn't praise a lot of people, but Patricia's his guy. If Patricia comes up with a really good game plan on Sunday, Bill will praise Matt Patricia. And here's the thing for Patricia, as I kind of alluded to, it's a soft landing. The Lions aren't just a bad defense. They are historically bad. Horrible, right? They're the only team in the entire NFL that's giving up more than 30 points per game. And by the way, it's at 35.2. They, they've gone way over what the rest of the league is giving up, right? They're the only team that is in a position where they're just completely inept defensively. We have bad defenses in the league. The Lions are at a totally different stratosphere, right? 6.4 points per game worse than anybody else they're giving up. They're also giving up 440.8 yards per game, or I should say 444.8 yards per game. That's almost 17 yards more than anybody else in the league. Okay, so this Lions team is a team that your third-string quarterback can beat. Geno Smith, who, uh, look, he's a decent quarterback and all that. That Seattle offense is not good. They beat the Lions last week, and we're going up and down the field on those guys, right? So the number one thing to me with Patricia is they need to take care of the quarterback in Bailey Zappi. They're giving up 12.2 yards per completion are the Lions, fifth worst in the NFL. They're giving up 279 passing yards per game, third worst in the NFL. So the point being, the opportunities are there for the Pats. And the issue for the Lions, and we kind of mentioned this briefly the other day, is they have a lot of trouble getting to the quarterback in terms of their ability to rush the passer. In terms of pro football focuses grade, they have the Lions at 27th in terms of their pass rush grade. And they're blitzing all the time. 64 total blitzes, most of the NFL Yet they have just seven sacks, which is 23rd. So you have the most blitzes at the NFL, but you're only 23rd as it pertains to sacks. That should not be happening if you're blitzing that often, right? So this is where Patricia has the easy landing. He knows what's coming. They have to bring the house. They have to blitz because if they don't blitz, they can't get to the quarterback. And as it is, even when they are blitzing, they're not getting to the quarterback whatsoever. So you know exactly what's coming. Patricia has a very simple job this week. And I understand it's a third string quarterback and all that, but you know exactly what's coming. They have no other way to get to the quarterback, right? So this is where he needs to help Zappi, Matt Patricia, right? Last week, Zappi, 3.31 seconds to throw, which is a long time, right? And we saw one of the issues that Zappi fell into is he held on to the ball for too long, right? That 3.31, that shouldn't happen unless you're a really mobile quarterback that can create, that can throw on the run, too. Like, this should not be happening to Zappi, right? Even though Zappi, I thought he threw the ball pretty well last week. But anyway, the point being, what we did see sometimes when Zappi got himself into trouble, and James White talked about this with us, too, is he held on to the ball a little bit too long. When that player wasn't available, instead of throwing it away, sometimes, I don't want to say playing hero ball, but when the player wasn't open, 
he was taking sacks, three of them, in fact. So that's something they've got to clean up, and that comes with the time to throw getting down there, right? So the game plan should be get the ball out quickly, use the RPOs, use screens, draw up some layups, right? This shouldn't be like the offense we were watching the majority of the season with Mac, where they were taking a lot of shots down the field. Mac was thrown into a tight, lot of tight windows. That shouldn't be the case coming up in this game on Sunday. You look at Zappi at the collegiate level. His average time to throw was 2.47 seconds. That was sixth among quarterbacks that had at least 400 dropbacks. That's where he plays well. That's where he can thrive. And I know we talked about this with Coach Helton the other day. It's a big jump going from the collegiate level to the NFL. But this is where he thrives when he gets the ball out quickly, not when he's holding on to the ball for 3.31 seconds, right? So this now on Sunday is about catering to his skill set from Matt Patricia's perspective, right? What we should see is a lot of yak, right? The Patriots are 23rd in yak, which is not good. Just 375 yards, yards after the catch. This should be the game where the coordinator can find those easy opportunities for the quarterback and play to his strengths because of the defense on the other side, because they're so bad on that side. You know what's coming. This game is about Patricia from my perspective. More so about Zappi, it's about Patricia. Because we know eventually when Mac comes back, he's the starting quarterback of the Patriots. And Matt Patricia is still going to be the offensive coordinator. He's going to have a good game plan. And it does feel like this is the week. If he's going to shine, it would be it. Now, the other thing I'd mention, too, is remember what happened in 2016, week three. Jacoby Brissett, a really young player. Jimmy Garoppolo was injured. A third round rookie. little similar, right? Bailey Zappi, a fourth round rookie. And what they did is they simplified things in that game plan for Brissett. Because how could he be able to run the same offense that Jimmy Garoppolo was where Garoppolo had been with the organization since 14, and it was the same offense that Tom Brady was running for all those years. You couldn't expect that, right? So the Patriots had to come up with a game plan on the fly because remember that week, Garoppolo had gotten injured against the Dolphins. They bring in Brissett, and then Brissett's going to start on a short week in Houston against the Texans, and they simplified the game plan. And part of what he did is he ran the ball. Eight rushes for 48 yards with a TD. They played to his strengths at the time, right? Where they said, okay, let's use his athleticism a little bit. I'm not saying the game plan is similar with Zappi. I told you what the game plan is for Zappi. Get the ball out quickly. But the point being is the Patriots that year, they played exactly to the strengths of Jacoby Brissett. They need to duplicate that process for Bailey Zappi coming up on Sunday. All right, so that's my number one ingredient for how the Patriots pick up a win on Sunday. Number two, and this kind of comes back to Patricia as well, but it's pound the rock. So if you look at... The Lions defense, they're giving up 5.6 yards per rush. Want to guess where that ranks at the NFL? Last. They're giving up 165.5 yards per game on the ground. You know where that ranks? 30th. They are 32nd dead last in rush EPA. So on a per play basis, nobody is worse than the Detroit Lions defending the rush. The Patriots are number one in the NFL in success rate in terms of their run game. So that means positive plays, right? They're the best at the NFL when it comes to that. Stevenson's at 4.9 yards per carry. Harris is at 4.6. Stevenson is fourth in the NFL in broken tackles per attempt at 8.6. So he has been tremendous. Harris has been really good as well. And the other thing I'd look at is they've blocked it well for these guys up front. Harris is 13th in yards before contact at three yards a carry. Stevenson is 16th at 2.9. So they've created some holes for these guys. So this is a day where because you have Bailey Zappi at quarterback, the rookie, where you should eat up some clock in terms of the running game, and the Lions are uniquely equipped to allow the Patriots to rush for a lot of yards in this game because they cannot stop the run whatsoever, right? 
The Patriots so far this season, 13th in time of possession, so a little bit above average, but this should be the type of game where they can eat up the clock. And especially because the Lions have been good offensively. We'll get into that with Dan Miller, the play-by-play voice of the Lions. But because of that, you do want to stay on the field more. I know it may sound simplistic, but two of your best players are Damian Harrison and Rondre Stevenson. Pound the ball with those guys. The Lions will not be able to stop them. So that's number two in terms of the ingredients to win on Sunday. Number three is take the ball away. Okay. Last week, we saw Jack Jones at pick six, and then Jack Jones forced the fumble. That's why the Patriots are in the game. The Packers outgained them. The Packers were moving the ball more. The reason they were in the game is because the Patriots won the turnover battle 2-1, to one, and they forced those turnovers defensively, and they got the defensive score, of course. The Patriots so far in the season are minus three in turnover differential. Only the Colts, the Commanders, and the Saints are worse. And we know for the Patriots, the giveaways have been the issue, right? They have nine on the season that's tied for the second most of the NFL. And they're turning the ball over on 21.4% of their drives. That is second worst of the NFL, okay? One out of every fifth drive, pretty much, right? Horrific. So we know the offense has been the issue in terms of the differential I reference. The Patriots do have six turnovers. That's tied for 13th of the NFL. So not bad there. They're turning teams over on 11.6% of drives, middle of the road, 16th of the NFL. So... Middle of the road in terms of causing turnovers. With a rookie quarterback, as we alluded to earlier with Bailey Zappi, the Patriots are struggling offensively to begin with, right? I mean, you look at it on the season. They're scoring on 28.6% of their drives, which is 28th of the NFL. What that means is you're not scoring efficiently. You've struggled at times to move the ball. Now, I don't think that'll be an issue on Sunday, but just in terms of what this team has done so far this season, you want to create extra bites at the apple, just like you did last week against the... Green Bay Packers, and you had an opportunity to win that game despite being outgained, right? And the Lions, here's the thing. They have not been a big turnover team, just four on the season. Jared Goff, 11 touchdowns and just three interceptions. But you look deeper into that number with Goff, right? Goff, in terms of pro football focus, measures turnover-worthy plays, right? So like when the quarterback throws the ball right to the defensive back and he doesn't catch it, that would be a turnover-worthy play. Goff's pretty high in that number. He's at eight in terms of turnover-worthy plays. Only Derek Carr and Matt Ryan have more. So here's the thing. He will give the Patriots some chances. Now, they are only one and three, the Detroit Lions, but they actually, if you look at it, they've been given some breaks in terms of opponents not coming up with those clutch interceptions. The Patriots need to be able to do that, of course, coming up on Sunday, and Goff will give you an opportunity. All right, number four in terms of the ingredients to win on Sunday. Get Detroit to third down, and then you can expose the real Jared Goff, right? Because Goff's had a good season so far, but and this offense has been electric with their new offensive coordinator, Ben Johnson. They've been really, really good, okay? They're averaging 35 points per game most of the NFL. 6.5 yards per play, that's first in the NFL. I mean, I can't believe that the Lions are—I mean, this is a weird team. Most points and most points give it up. I mean, it is really bizarre. I don't—I would be going nuts watching this team. Okay, but they do have one flaw. Their third down offense has not been great. In terms of, you look at it, they're converting just 37.74% of their third downs into first downs. That's 19th in the NFL. Now, the Patriots are allowing teams to convert 46.3% of the time on third down. That's 28th in the NFL. So the Patriots have not been good when it comes to that. You can even go back to the Trubisky game where that guy's converting a third and 17 and a third and 10, right? It's been an issue for the Patriots. But the Lions, even though they've been so 
successful offensively, they have struggled on third down. So get these guys to third down. And I know Jared Goff has been good, as we alluded to this season, against pressure, right? When you look at it in terms of Jared Goff against pressure this season, not bad. He does have two interceptions, and he has the three touchdowns as well. But think about this last season against pressure, when pressured. 70 of 135, that's 51.9%, four touchdowns, four picks, a 69.2 rating. If you go back to the 2020 season, Goff, when pressured, 74 of 162, so what, 45 point, just over 45, or I should say just south of 46%, four touchdowns, seven interceptions, his rating was a 50, okay? Four TDs, seven interceptions, a rating of a 50. Last season, he was not good against pressure either. This year, he's been a little bit better, but we kind of have a long measurement, a large sample size, if you will, of Jared Goff's career. And that sample size would tell you that Goff is not a good quarterback when he's pressured, despite some better numbers this season. So expose the real Jared Goff by getting after this quarterback and putting him in bad situations. Okay, so that's number four in terms of the ingredients to win on Sunday. Number five is this. By any means necessary, and this may seem awfully simplistic, but they need to win in the worst way. So that means, okay, whether you're playing, say hypothetically, Stevenson's playing really really well. Ride Stevenson, keep playing Stevenson over Harris, even though Harris is a really good player. Maybe that means, and I know this is going to sound crazy, playing Kendrick Bourne more, right? Because if you look at it, And look, Parker's done some nice things for this team. I'm not disputing that. But if you look at Parker, maybe he has to be off the field a little bit more. Parker on the season, I'll give him credit. He's number one in the NFL in yards per reception, 23.6 yards per reception, right? He's been great in terms of being a deep threat at times. But only four players are worse in terms of separation per target, 1.9 yards of separation per target. And if you look at that, that's really bad for a guy like Bailey Zappi, right? Where you want the picture to be clear to Zappi. You want Zappi to have wide open receivers, or at least relatively open receivers, not really throwing up those 50-50 balls. And that's where I just don't know if the Parker-Zappi sort of connection, I know he had a touchdown in the play-action pass, but that's a different situation. Parker's wide open. But maybe that means on Sunday you need more of Aguilar and you need more of Bourne, because if you look at it too, it's not a rarely efficient season for Parker. His catch percentage is at 50%. Only seven receivers are worse than that. So I get it. Like, there is definitely a role for Parker on this team. We've seen it. I mean, he had a massive game against the Baltimore Ravens, right? Clearly, he has a role on this team. But if Bourne and Aguilar are better options than Parker against this team with this type of quarterback, then you play those guys more because of their ability after the catch. And, of course, they both have high catch rates. If you look at Aguilar, 77.8%. Bourne's at 75%. These are guys that can really separate and get open. And by the way, Aguilar right now is at 137.3 in terms of the rating when targeted. Only Stephon Diggs is better than him among receivers that have been targeted 20 times. So this is a guy that we have seen should be successful in this type of game. Same thing with Kendrick Bourne. And look, I'm not crazy if Parker's out there and he's playing well. You keep Parker in the game. But I'm just saying you may have to adjust with a young quarterback that's in year one coming out of Western Kentucky. And I know Mac's young as well, but we've seen Mac the first three weeks. He is throwing it up, right? He's throwing 50-50 balls. I don't want Bailey Zappi doing that. So that may mean more born than Devontae Parker coming up on Sunday. The other thing I wanted to mention is this. That may mean, (laughs) and we saw this a little bit the other day, we saw the jumbo package, but we also saw Marcus Cannon in the game. That may mean at times, if Isaiah Wynn fucking sucks, like we've seen pretty much all season long, Play Marcus Cannon. Isaiah Wynn, 
five accepted penalties on the season. You know how that ranks at the NFL? Number one, most penalties in the league. Last week in that game against the Green Bay Packers, and I'm not telling you that pro football focus grades are the be-all, end-all, but he had a 21.2 grade when Marcus Cannon had a 78.3 grade, okay? So if that means that Isaiah Wentz feelings are hurt and he's not on the field, unfortunately for him, that sucks. That means Marcus Cannon's going to play because you cannot continue to have these crazy penalties like we've seen from Isaiah Wynn. It's just too much. And here's the problem for the Patriots. We gave you the numbers 28th in terms of when they're scoring, in terms of their drives, in terms of the percentage there. They can't overcome those negative plays. And Isaiah Wynn has put this team in bad positions over and over again this year. The other thing is this, just looking forward is why this has now become a must win. First of all, you're one and three. Secondarily, it's the Detroit Lions who have the worst defense at the NFL. And this is where you got to create some momentum because after this, you have the Browns with no Deshaun Watson. You have the Bears who their offense is anemic. The Jets, the Colts, and the Jets again. It's time for this team to get fat. And I just think from a camaraderie standpoint, from a vibes perspective, if you will, this team needs a win in the worst way. And think about how satisfying it would be, even though it's the Lions and I get historically inept franchise, how great it would be for the Patriots just for their confidence going forward and the demeanor of the team to beat this Detroit team, A, for Matt Patricia, because a lot of the players like Matt Patricia, but more importantly, do it with your third string quarterback. I think it would just be huge for the team going forward the remainder of the season. All right, speaking of this game, my greatest Boston bet of the week, thanks to our friends at FanDuel. I think the Patriots covered the three and a half. They're winning this game. They're going to run it down the Lions' throats, as I gave you the blueprint for the game in terms of the ingredients in winning, and they'll get Goff to throw them a few. I believe the Patriots are going to cash in. Goff's going to throw them a couple of interceptions in this game. They win the turnover battle. They win the game. Oh, the other one I wanted to give you, thanks to our friends at FanDuel as well. So, And I'll get to this guy later on. So I was looking at the sixth man of the year award and the odds. Malcolm Brogdon plus 1,300. Plus 1,300 for Malcolm Brogdon. See what he's been doing so far in the preseason? And I do believe he's going to stay there in terms of coming off the bench just because eventually when Rob comes back, he's going to get a starting role. So I think they like having Derek White out there to start these games. And then Brogdon can sort of come in with the second unit and with some of the starters as well. So I think Brogdon does stay in that six-man role, and I think he's going to win the six-man of the year. So plus 1,300, get that in now. That's the same odds, by the way, for Tatum's MVP odds, if you will. And I am told you to get on that as well. I don't know why Tatum wasn't in the GM survey in terms of his chance to win the MVP because he's, he's going to have a lot of opportunities. They're going to win a lot of games. I don't know why he's not up there on that list. All right, coming up next, we're going to chat with Dan Miller, the play-by-play voice of the Detroit Lions. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, the play-by-play voice of the Lions. And of course, the sports director at Fox 2 there in Detroit as well. It is Dan Miller. Dan, thanks so much for taking some time. We really appreciate it. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. So we got to start with this, Dan. So is this like Matt Patricia revenge week? Are the Lions fans ready to get after Patricia? 
You know, it, there hasn't been that much talk about it, really. It's, I mean, it's out there and you get a little bit of it, but I mean, it's like the Tigers are wrapping up a terrible season. The Wings and Pistons are getting ready to go and the Lions are one and three. I mean, right now, it doesn't matter if you want to put 10 ex-Lions coaches over there. They just need to find a way to, you know, win some of these close games they've been letting get away. But uh, look, it's it's out there, but it's not – this hasn't been the type of lead story. It's Matt Patricia week or something like that. So, Dan, when you found out this year, or before the season, I should say, that, hey, uh, Patricia is going to be calling the plays for the Patriots offensively, what was your reaction to that? No, I was surprised. I mean, it just – look, I, I know that he had offensive line in his background, so it's not like it's completely foreign to him, but – you know, we didn't get a lot of inclination here that that was something that that he was doing a deep dive into. So I think probably just like anybody else, if for no other reason, just that his concentration had been so much on the other side of the ball, when they did that, it was one of those things that surprised you a little bit. But then you sit back and you think, okay, it's Bill Belichick. I'm not going to question him. He tends to do things at times that will surprise you, but more often than not, he has a really good idea what he's doing. Yeah, so one of the things, Dan, that stuck out to us here in New England for his time there with the Detroit Lions was, of course, the Malcolm Butler play that he referenced, right? He was asked about the fact that they couldn't close out games, and he said, well, I think I have one of the biggest plays in the history, and that was in 2020. Is that when you knew he was starting to kind of lose it there in Detroit? You know, man, there's so many layers to that story, and it just, I think that, one of the things that that Patricia kind of brought with him was this attitude of, I know how to do it. You guys don't. I've done it. You haven't. And that's not wrong. It's just the way that sometimes it manifested itself in his actions. I think it, it, it turned the players off. I think there was at times an, an arrogance with the media that didn't meet the results that he was getting. And let me say this. I got along great with him. As the play-by-play guy, I had to do numerous things with him every week. I enjoyed sitting there talking to him one-on-one. I loved picking his brain. I found him to be a very interesting guy. But in terms of bottom line, it was, I, I think the results didn't match, I think, the way that he portrayed what he was going to bring to Detroit. Now, look, you don't walk in here, you know, tiptoeing, like, I think I know what I'm doing. That's just who he is. And, and, and I can't. And, and, and this is where you get into kind of the nuance of it. He's got rings, man. Bob Quinn had rings. These guys did bring a heck of a, a successful resume with them when they came to Detroit. And the hope was that it was translate. The problem is that it didn't. So I can't sit here and say, Matt Patricia can't do this or can't do that, or Bob Quinn couldn't do this or couldn't do that because they have done it. They've done it at a high level. But just in terms of being a head coach and a general manager and bringing the Patriot system, I know they hated when you called it the Patriot way, but the Patriot system to Detroit, it just didn't work. Well, it is funny, too, because it does sound like a lot of the other guys that have left the nest, so to speak, the Eric Mangini's of the world, Josh McDaniels had real similar problems in Detroit. Heck, he may be having similar problems in Las Vegas for different reasons right now. But you talk about like mimicking in the Patriot way. He didn't like that. Didn't he try to or didn't he have a hill installed for like um, conditioning like they did with the Patriots? So it does seem like he was trying to just do exactly oh. what they did here. Yeah, I, I don't look. I can't speak to exactly what they do in New England, but certainly uh, our 
belief in watching from the outside was much of what they were doing was exactly what they had done in New England. And, and why wouldn't you? They were tremendously successful there. Um, it's just, you know, Glover Quinn was on a, a local um, podcast recently, and he talked about this. And he talked about the fact that when Patricia came in, the Lions were coming off two consecutive nine and seven seasons. And Glover's take on Patricia's entrance was, you guys have no idea what you're doing. I'm going to show you. And Glover said the players kind of looked around and said, look, we won nine games. We're not looking for you to teach us how to play. We're looking for you to teach us how to take that next step. These weren't bad teams he was taking over. They weren't Super Bowl champions. But I think that's where it got on, off on the wrong foot with a lot of players right away. And then all of a sudden you're seeing, you know, top guys on the team that are clearly – at odds with Patricia from Glover to Quandre Diggs to, to Darius Slade, guys that have been traded and gone on to get Pro Bowl invites for other teams. And you look around now and you're like, man, they could still be helping us right now. So, um, I, you know, just from the beginning, it wasn't a good fit. It, it didn't, it wasn't a good marriage of players and coach. Um, they weren't bringing the right players in to turn the thing around. And it just, Man, I, I, I look and, and let me say this: Matt Patricia is not the only coach that hasn't worked in Detroit. Unfortunately, <laughs> we we could we could sit here and talk about a number of coaches that haven't worked in Detroit. But if we are simply talking about that era, those three years, that time, it just didn't work. And I, I you know, you look back on it, and it's it's about talent, it's about coaching, it's about everything that just wasn't going right. And look, we're trying to figure it out before he got here. We're still trying to figure it out now. So, as I say, this isn't just a conversation about Matt Patricia in some ways. It's an organizational thing. But they had con very much control of this organization. Quinn was here for five, Patricia here for three, and the, the results just weren't there. Yeah, so now looking forward to Sunday with Patricia on the other side calling plays for the offense. How about this Lions start to the season? Because I remember watching Hard Knocks and Dan Campbell. He was like, everybody loved Dan Campbell on the team, and he became like a superstar with the media as well. So what is sort of the dynamic now after the 1-3 and three start? Well, I, you know, it's funny because when Hard Knocks was going on, I do think that people kind of got to see what we see, which is that he is a very charismatic guy. He does pop off the screen, and so is Aaron Glenn, and so is Deuce Staley. Big, powerful personalities. But it's funny because as that show was going on around the country, people started saying, wow, Lions could be the it team. And I think here in Detroit, we were much more measured. We were like, hey, pump the brakes, man. We won three games last year. There's still a lot of rebuilding going on here. So I think there was a difference in the way it was viewed outside and the way it was viewed here in Detroit. But that being said, I think the one and three start is really disappointing. You've got the highest scoring offense in the league and a defense that unfortunately at this point hasn't been able to stop anybody. And in particular, hasn't been able to stop anybody at critical times. And that's, that's a carryover from last year when they were at or near the bottom of the league in pretty much every significant defensive category last year. So um, there's some good things happening. I thought the offense would be the strength of the team. They've built this team around that offensive line. They've given Jared Goff weapons to work with. He's responded well to that. But that defense that Matt Patricia is going to go up against this weekend has really, really struggled. And they're searching for answers right now, talking about making changes, talking about simplifying things. And, and we'll all kind of see what that looks like together on Sunday. 
Yeah, so on the offense, what have they done differently this year compared to last year? Because like everything with Jared Goff looks different in terms of he's throwing the ball down the field more. He's tied for the league lead in touchdowns. So what's been different there? So let me go back and and go back to last year when, when he was traded. I mean, I think his head was spinning. I think he was dumped by L.A. I think he got off to a rough start here in Detroit. He had basically nothing around him. The guy, the receivers, they thought there would be their, their top guys coming out of camp didn't even make it through the first game. So all of a sudden you're looking around and you're pulling guys off the street to play receiver. And it, it was tough. And you look in L.A., they're unbeaten through the first half of the season. The guy you got traded for who took your place is the MVP for the first half of the season. And I think for Jared Goff, it was just a lot going on. And I don't think he settled in until late in the year. And if you look at the last five or six games, he had 11 touchdown passes and two interceptions. And he started to find himself. And Amon Roberts, St. Brown, started to find himself and assert himself as a rookie, really got comfortable. They picked up Josh Reynolds off waivers who had played with Jared Goff in L.A. So you could see the comfort level starting to rise with him. And I think this year, you know, they go out and they get D.J. Chark. St. Brown is, is coming back for his second year. They bring back Josh Reynolds. You've got T.J. Hawkinson. Swift was healthy to start the season. You've got Jamal Williams, an offensive line, which is the strength of the team that they've put a lot of assets into. You've got first-round picks and pro bowlers in there. Um, so this offense was built to score this year. So Goff is better. The team around him is better. And you've got a, uh, an offensive coordinator, and I should throw that in. They fired the offensive coordinator halfway through last year, Anthony Lynn. And I think his comfort level level went up after Lynn left. I just don't think there was a good vibe between the two of them. So Ben Johnson, the new offensive coordinator, he and Jerry get along very well. They've been a lot of talk about those two designing this offense together during the offseason. And I just think he's in a totally different place mentally, physically, and what he's surrounded by um, with his team. So, look, Jared needed to make a statement this year that he is – the quarterback of the future for this team. If he didn't, he probably wouldn't be. And through four games, I, I think he's done a real nice job of making that statement. Yeah, and you look at it too, this running game. I know DeAndre Swift's been banged up. It looks like he's not going to play, but they still have Jamal Williams. So it does feel like they have sort of everything going. I mean, the passing game's obviously clicked, and they've been able to run the ball with a lot of success too, Dan. Yeah, let me tell you something. We have in Detroit, since Barry left roughly, in 2000, from 2000 to 2022, the Lions have been better than 20th in the league in rushing three times. And none of those were top 10. I mean, you're talking 19, 19, I think in like 13 or 14 or something like that. It's just they haven't been able to run the ball. And it hasn't been for lack of trying. They tried to give Matthew Stafford a running attack because they knew less Matthew would have been better because you can't put it all on him. Teams knew that Matthew Stafford couldn't turn around, hand the ball to somebody and make something good happen because there just was no running game. So I, I think Dan Campbell came in and said, you know, we got to get that thing going. I mean, you know, he's a Parcells guy. You know, he's a Sean Payton guy. He's a guy that, that comes from that kind of that Parcells tree that they want to grind it out. They, and he made that clear from the moment he walked in. Now, they want to throw the ball, but they want to throw the ball off the ability to run the ball. And they've been able to do that so far. And that's not by accident. I mean, again, you got – multiple first-round picks on that offensive line and a third-round pick at guard who's a pro bowler. So they've put a lot of assets into that and they want to be able to do it. So it has worked. I think that's made Jared much more comfortable 
And I certainly think that has kept defenses off balance because you can't just look at the Lions as being one-dimensional. I'll just I'll close this by saying this. You've done this a long time. I've done this a long time. You talk to coaches before a game. What do they always say? Got to take the running game away. Got to make them one-dimensional. The Lions did that four teams for a long time. They didn't <laughs> have to make the Lions one-dimensional. They were one-dimensional going in. So, you know, it, this is a different look. We're four games in. We'll see where it goes. But so far, I think it has matched the vision that they've had. And Dan, before it's funny, before we get into the defense and the issues that they've had, so from their perspective this week, the way they're talking, are they preparing for Mac? Are they preparing for Bailey Zappi? I know Hoyer's in concussion protocol. It doesn't look like Mac's going to play. He's limping. But is there anything different in preparation when they're dealing with potentially a third-string quarterback rather than Mac? I think, honestly, what uh, Dan Campbell has said is you're preparing for Bill Belichick. You're preparing for a guy that's going to have his team ready to go. And that's not a slight to Matt Patricia or anything along those lines. He's He's making – you know, writing his book about what he is as an offensive play caller. But I think there's so much respect for the head coach of New England that you know that regardless of who the quarterback is, and, and, and to answer your question, they don't know who the quarterback is going to be. They may assume that in this time of, of, of heightened awareness, you're not just going to roll a guy out of concussion protocol and send him back out there next week. I think we're all kind of watching those things now. And I think that makes it even more important to make sure the four years, 100 percent before he's ready to go. Um, and Mac Jones, I mean, I, I don't you're much closer to it than I am. I saw him throwing the ball a little bit yesterday, but it doesn't seem like he's ready to come back out, play and start yet. But look, they're getting ready for the Patriots. They're getting ready for Belichick. I don't know if they have inside info on which quarterback they're expecting, but I think they're preparing for, for everybody. Yeah, I assume it's going to be Zappy just because Mac is still banged up. And the Hoyer situation, obviously the league is going to be more serious about that with the right. concussion issue with Tua. But looking at this defense, it's amazing to me, Dan. They scored the most points in the NFL, and they've given up the most points in the NFL, as you alluded to a little bit earlier. So what has been their biggest issue defensively? Not being able to press the quarterback. Uh, they've not been able to stop the run. Um, they're really they're not taking the ball away. They're not making big plays. A lot of times, big plays come as a byproduct of, you know, stopping the run, getting a team in a disadvantageous uh, down and distance situation. But, I mean, even you go back to the Seattle game where they did not make Seattle punt one time the entire game, they had them in some first and 15s. They had them in some, some first and 20s. But Seattle had no problem getting out of them. They're just – Look, they're not doing anything well right now defensively. I mean, Aaron Glenn just stepped to the podium a couple of minutes ago and said, I wish I could tell you something positive out of that game. Their defensive coordinator, he goes, there wasn't anything positive out of that game. So um, you name it, it's not going well for this defense right now. now yeah, look, Malcolm Rodriguez, rookie linebackers, played well for them. He's done some nice things. Uh, Jeff Okuda. Wasn't his best game Saturday, but the three games before that, he had done a real nice job against some top flight receivers. So there's some individuals that you're seeing the pro growth and the progress, but in terms of the overall product, it just hasn't been good. And they've got to figure this thing out because if that defense had been that much better, I mean, this this team could easily be three and one. I mean, it's you go back to that Philadelphia game. They had a third and two with just over three minutes to go where they had Sanders boxed in and you're about to get the football back with all the momentum in the world and they just let him go and he gets a first down game over. Um, you know, they win the Washington game, the Seattle game. They can't come up with one stop. 
They had an onside kick at the end of the game, down three, that's bouncing around free for anybody to grab. They could have literally grabbed that, scored, and their offense wasn't being stopped. You look at the drive chart. It was touchdown, touchdown, touchdown at the end of the game. They could have scored and won that game without forcing a punt the entire time. So it's uh, it's unfortunate that the defense is struggling the way it is, but, man, uh, they're just looking for the light at the end of the tunnel with this thing because it has not been good, and, and that's – doesn't matter who the quarterback for New England is. If you're not playing better than you have, it's going to be tough. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I felt bad when the Patriots didn't force the Bills to punt a couple of times last year. But Seattle, I mean, that that's in a different territory. It's Josh Allen, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, I mean, look, Geno Smith is playing well. I don't want to take yeah. anything away from him. But they came into the game averaging 15 point whatever points a game and hung 48 on them. They'd scored 47 points the entire year. And hung 48 on. So, I mean, it's, you know, Josh Allen is one thing, uh, a Seattle offense with no disrespect to anybody there that had been struggling by the numbers coming in, scoring 15 points a game, got real healthy against this defense. Yeah, and you mentioned some of the guys, Jeff Fakuda, et cetera, but what about the guy they took number one, Aiden Hutchinson? I mean, I'm looking at some of the stuff. It doesn't look like he's grading out well, but you're right there. I mean, what have you seen with him? He looks like a rookie. I mean, he, he looks like a rookie. I think he's got to figure some things out, and I think they're trying to help him through it. I wish I could sit here and tell you that uh, the numbers are lying and he's playing great, but, you know, he had three sacks and one half against Washington. Other than that, you know, he's, he's gotten there a couple times, hasn't been able to finish. Uh, I think there's a lot of things to like about Aiden, but I think he is part of a defense that is struggling right now. And sometimes those things are contagious and, and he's struggling along with it. But um, it, it's going to be real interesting to see what the rest of his rookie year looks like. I think he's figured out that in the NFL, it's a lot different than being in college where you're just simply better than everybody on the other side when you're as elite as he is. Uh, you're going up against some terrific tackles and you know even some of these 265-pound tight ends know how to block. So... I think it's a matter of him diversifying his game. It's more than a bull rush. It's it's counter moves. It's figuring out the different things that were he can take his talent and use it in different ways. And I think that's the process that he's going through right now. And Dan, just before we let you go, because of course we're here in Boston, the Celtics are looking to get back to the NBA finals. And I was just looking at this Eastern Conference and it's like stacked top to bottom. So what can we expect? Is that Pistons team going to be frisky? Because, of course, when Kate Cunningham came back, he was pretty good. They pick up Jaden Ivey. Is this going to be like not your average team that's not making the playoffs that you have to go up against? Yeah, and Jalen Duran too. He, you know, he came out in the first preseason game out of 14 rebounds. I think they're really, really excited about what he can be, but he's really young, 18, 19 years old. So, um, look, I do think good word, frisky. I do think they're going to be a tough out for some people. But they are still really young. I mean, Cade Cunningham is still in his second year. Jaden Ivey is still somebody who um, you watch him play, tremendous talent, and just watching summer league and, and even watching him in college because Big Ten. Um, you know, there, there's some raw edges to his game that he's going to have to even out that are magnified when he gets to the NBA. But, you know, they, they need guys like Stewart and Bay guys that are going into their third year now to improve and get better and start to be the leaders of this team. So, uh, I like what they did going out and getting Burks and getting Nerlens Noel, and, and uh, they traded for Bogdanovich, which I think was a great trade for them, just to bring in some veteran guys that can help these young guys come along. It's there. There is they're at 
almost at ground zero now from getting rid of everything old and building up with the new. And now I think you're going to see the growth of this team, but it, it's, it's not going to be, you know, ascending in a straight line. There's going to be some ups and downs night to night. Lot, I do think there's a nice amount of talent on this team, the most we've seen in quite some time, but it's young. And I think that's the one thing they're going to have to battle throughout much of the year is just figuring that out. Well, looking forward to watching the Seas play the Pistons this year and looking forward to Sunday. Dan Miller, thank you so much. He'll be on the call. Oh, and by the way, Dan, it's going to be nice to watch this game because the Patriots are wearing their old school Pat the Patriot uniform, not their awful like, color rush ones. So that'll be that'll be I, fun I, to watch as well. <laughs> I saw those. Those those do look. I'm not a huge uniform guy, but somebody posted those on Twitter yesterday and I saw them. those are nice. Those do bring back some memories of, of teams gone by. So, yeah, I, I like seeing that. That'll be fun. Look, uh, it's two teams that need a win. And that makes it an interesting game because neither of them want to sit there going to one and four and the Lions are heading to their bye. They don't want to sit on that for two weeks. So it'll be fun. All right, Dan, appreciate the time, my friend. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it as well. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Great stuff there from Dan Miller, the radio play-by-play voice of the Detroit Lions. Cannot wait for this game coming up on Sunday. Cannot wait to see the Pat, the Patriot uniforms. Very excited about that. Great stuff from Dan, too. On Matt Patricia. All right, so Red Sox season is over. Let's get to a call on that. The number six one seven three nine six seven one seven two six one seven three nine six seven one seven two. Hi, Brian. Jason in Beverly, Mass. Again, I have never been more depressed as a Red Sox fan after Game One Sixty Two. You know, Eckersley leaving. It just feels like another piece of kind of the golden age of Red Sox baseball is gone. We're going into the off season. Who knows who's going to be on the team next year? I mean, this year's team. 178 games, and unless they spend hundreds of millions of dollars, this organization that has been so risk-averse for the last five years, unless they commit hundreds of millions of dollars to this team, it's hard to see them getting better next year or the next five years. It feels like we're entering a dark age of Red Sox baseball, and just uh, Eck is just one more kind of connection to the past, the glory days that's gone, and it fucking sucks. (laughs) <laughs> I'm with you, Jason. And an interesting point, too, right, in terms of the 162. That was just that game yesterday sort of summarized the whole season. Now, I know the Red Sox ended up winning the game, but just in terms of there was nobody at the game. You had the whole situation with Eck, which, by the way, you should read Chad Finn's piece at the Globe if you haven't. I mean, unbelievably followed around Eck for the final day. It was great stuff. But you could tell on that broadcast how emotional Eck was and how much being a part of the Red Sox broadcast team meant to Eck. So first of all, we were all sad about that watching Eck as they had a video montage. He was pretty much crying in the booth for a good portion of the game. So that got to you. And then the Bogarts thing, right? Where, and it's a rainy day too, so it kind of set the scene for all this. Cora, who is 
unbelievable in terms of his relationship with his players. You all know that. I'm not telling you anything new. But he pulls Bogarts in the seventh inning. And what was sad to me about this, it was an unbelievable gesture by Cora. Unbelievable, right? But here was the problem. There's nobody at the fucking game. So nobody saw it. Like, we saw it on TV, but I felt bad for Xander. If that was his final game as a member of the organization, there was, like, nobody there watching the game. But, and then the other thing, just looking at it, 78 wins is what the Red Sox ended up with. It took 86 to get into the damn postseason. I, the Red Sox, it's a joke that they didn't make the postseason this year. But I will say this. I do feel more optimistic than you do going forward in terms of where the team's at, right? Because they can certainly get better. You get a ton of money coming off the books. If they're not significantly better this year, then Bloom is just one of the worst GMs we've seen in the history of Major League Baseball. I mean, there's no excuses going into next year with all the money coming off the books. So I'm definitely more optimistic on that. And I do feel like, at the end of the season, some nice developments with Cassis and with Brian Bale. But I did find it interesting, right, where Alex Cora said on Wednesday when he was asked about the offseason plan, and he's talking about the players, but I think some of this is directed at the front office too. The plan is the plan is in place for my end. One thing I really want is a sense of urgency. As an organization, we've done it throughout the years, and we have to push hard in the offseason. The message is going to be now, I love the future. We love the past. We don't like this past, right? But I think living in the present and pushing hard is something we're going to talk a lot about. That's something that it pushes you to be great. Okay, so that's the leader of the organization, okay, in totality. He's the leader of this organization. He's setting it down. This is the message, okay? So I love that from Cora saying that. Like, this shit is not acceptable. We got to get this back in order. Not just the players. The front office has got to get it together as well. We have got to be better. There has got to be a better product next year. So I found this interesting. On Thursday, the Red Sox were holding their like exit interviews, if you will, and Cora and Heim Bloom were talking to the media. So Sean McAdam, after this, he reports, according to multiple sources, Red Sox owners have met with Xander Bogarts more than once in recent weeks to kickstart contract negotiations. Okay, so this is... <laughs> This is not good for Bloom. The ownership group is talking to Xander Bogarts about the potential extension. I love it from a Red Sox perspective, but you would have thought that was something that Bloom would be doing, right? Now, I'm sure Bloom is in on the conversations and all that, but it is interesting just that this goes out there. Why does ownership want this out there? Ownership wants the fan base to be like excited that, hey, we're going to bring back Xander. We're going to bring him back. We're doing everything we possibly can. So they leak it to Sean McAdam that, and I'm sure that, McAdam says he had multiple sources. I believe him. He's a very good reporter. So they want this out there that, hey, we're saving this. Bogarts is staying here. Like, they almost won an award for this when we all know this deal could have already been done. Okay? So anyway, Bloom at the press conference today, this is what he says about Bogarts. I don't ever want to make public any blow by blow, but what I can say is this. That process is going to start right away on our end. Obviously, we know we haven't found that path yet. We still want to. We're going to work really hard at it. And this is one thing that irritates me about Bloom. just a small thing. Who talks like this? We haven't found the path yet. I mean, the path, you haven't offered him enough money yet. That's what the path is. I mean, that's all you have. That's all it is. I get to talk. Like, Bloom is the master of saying a lot of things without saying anything. And that's what he, we haven't found the path. What the, what the hell is that? Okay. Then he says, we want to keep him here for a long time. And we want him here on a deal that we're going to look back on and say, this was great for everybody. What the fuck? <laughs> we want to look back and say, this is great for everybody. This is not how 
baseball works. Like, I know he referenced the J.D. Martinez contract. It's very rare that a contract works out the way J.D. Martinez's contract worked out. And I know he didn't have the best year this year, but you think about the original contract that J.D. Martinez signed with the Red Sox. It worked out unbelievably for the Red Sox, right? I mean, you had one of the best sluggers in the sport for a four-year period, and he was on a very good deal. That's not how it ordinarily works in Major League Baseball, right? Think about this, for example. Bryce Harper, 13 for $330 million. The Mookie deal with the Dodgers, where he's making north of $350 million, $365. They don't care about the pain, the Phillies and the Dodgers, in terms of the first couple of years of the contract. That's what they're looking at, the first five, six, seven, eight years. They're not looking at the back end. And unfortunately, that's where you're at in Major League Baseball. Sometimes you have to suffer some sort of pain when you're signing these deals. And maybe that's what Bloom is scared of is sort of the urgency, right? Because when you sign a guy, now, not that he's signing these type of players, but when you sign those guys, well, then it's like, okay, you got to win now. The Phillies GM gets fired. They bring in Dave Dombrowski, signing Kyle Schwarber to big money deals. Maybe that's what he wants to escape. He doesn't want to give out that contract where it's like, okay, now going forward, we got to keep going at this, right? But I, I don't even like get the correlation here in terms of we got to do thing that's right for everybody. You're one of the richest franchise in the sport. And Bogarts is not in that neighborhood. He doesn't even like he's never been like super demanding about anything. Bogarts is a guy that took a six year, $120 million deal in 19. When they were trying to get something done with Mookie Betts, Bogarts at the beginning of that season in 19, went to the Red Sox and said, hey, I want to get a deal done. He wanted to be here. And this is before he even hit his prime. Like 19 was Bogart's best season, the year after the World Series year. He was a good player in 18. I'm not disputing that. But he wasn't Xander Bogart's, one of the best shortstops in Major League Baseball, really, until 19 is when he really took off. That was, 19 was one of his best seasons. I mean, he was incredible that season. It's really when he broke out. So Scott Boris at the time didn't want him to take the deal. He didn't want Bogarts to sign that because he's like, we can get more money. Just wait. Bogarts wanted to be here. Now, he did get the opt-outs in the contract. That's what Scott Boris said. Hey, well, if you're going to do this, at least get opt-outs, right? But Bogarts took a team-friendly deal. So you know that he just wants a reasonable contract. What you can't do is offer him what you did prior to the season, which is one additional year on his contract at 30 mil that on an annual average basis would pay him less than Trevor Story. You can't do that, okay? And I just, I look at it from this perspective too. Like, what's the alternative if you're not bringing back Bogarts, right? I don't see the Correa thing happening. Great player and younger, but again, he's always hurt too, but I just don't see that happening. So, and by the way, do we see Bloom outbidding somebody for Carlos Correa? I certainly don't. So I'm just looking at this from Bloom's perspective. So maybe Trey Turner, right? But unless the Dodgers have that upgrade, like if the Dodgers get Correa, maybe then Turner's there because if they don't get Correa, then they're going to re-sign Turner, right? And you look at the Bogarts-Turner comparison, Bogarts hit 307, Turner hit 298. Bogarts on base percentage was 377, Turner's was 343. Bogarts 833 OPS, Turner 809. Bogarts four defensive run save, Turner minus one defensive run save. I know that Turner's a super athlete, unbelievable base runner, good baseball player. I'm not disputing that whatsoever, but the numbers would tell you that Bogarts is the better player and they're both entering their age 30 season next year. So that's where you're at. They're basically the same age. Now, Turner can move around positionally and all that, but Bogarts has been the better player. You know he can play here. The other thing I'd say is this. This seems like such an easy choice for Bloom to get this done. You know the player. He's shown in the past he's willing to play ball. He's not looking for the most money out there. And secondarily, what's the negative feedback for signing Bogarts? Like, who's mad? 
nobody's mad about signing Bogarts. Who would people are gonna kill the Red Sox for signing the guy that's been the leader of their organization? Nobody's mad about it. So if you want to win from a PR perspective, which Heinblum hasn't had a lot of those lately, this would be the guy to bring back. And then the other thing is this: you don't have to worry about adding to the holes you already have, right? So let's say this, because remember, the Red Sox have an advantage here where you can't negotiate with other free agents and stuff until three days after the World Series. So they can get a deal, and Bogarts can't opt out until after the World Series. So they can get something done with Bogarts. Like, this should be, and Heimblum did allude to this, like, this is their number one priority right now because it's the thing that they can take care of. So why would you want to go into free agency, not have a deal done with Bogarts, and then not knowing what you're going to do with shortstop? It's just another problem that you're going to add to the collection of issues you have when you need to sign a top-end guy in the rotation, which I have multiple times have said, I want that guy to be Rodon, but you have to do that. You have to add to your bullpen, and you got to figure out your internal stuff, right? Like Michael Walker, qualifying offer. I'd offer him the qualifying offer. I have an idea that he would take it based on uh, the age, rather. It's a lot of money. He's not going to get a multi-year contract out there. If I was Waka, I would take that. So Waka could be back. You got to decide what you want to do with Nate. I would not give him the qualifying offer. And if he wants a cheap one to two year deal, fine. But I just don't trust the health of Avaldi whatsoever. So just get the Bogarts thing done. And then everything else becomes easier for you in the offseason. Make life easier on yourself, Bloom. It's been a difficult year. Make it easier. Okay, the other thing I wanted to get to real quickly here is the Celtics. So I watched, of course, the preseason game again last night. Malcolm Brogdon, 23 minutes, nine assists. Okay, I would like to see the three ball go down a little bit. But nonetheless, the other game, nine assists in 24 minutes. So now he has 18 assists in 47 minutes in the preseason. Okay, the Celtics, by the way, yesterday, 31 assists for the Celtics on that game Sunday or in that game Sunday against Charlotte, 41 assists. So last night, their assist percentage was 70.5%. Warriors led the league at 66.9% last season. So the Celtics are at 70.5 yesterday. The Seas were at 60.9% on the season last year. That was 14th in the NBA. So these assist numbers, this assist percentage is through the roof. And a lot of that has to do with Malcolm Brogdon and his creation, right? Because they didn't really have a guy that could create off the bounce other than Jalen Brown and Tatum. And Jalen's really not a great distributor, as we all know, at this particular point in time. This is not meant to be an indictment on Jalen, but he's not a great passer, and he turns the ball over a lot. We saw that in the postseason. By the way, Jalen looks phenomenal, by the way. Like, these workouts under the water, they clearly work, because he looks like a different beast right now. He looks unbelievable. Uh, He is putting pressure on the defense immediately. And we all know first quarter scoring, he's in the top 10 last year. He's going to be way up there again. He just gets off to such a quick start. But that's an aside. Marcus Smart doesn't really break guys down off the dribble. He's a good passer, but Brogdon can be that guy. And that's why I was thinking too, like in that game last night, just looking at this going forward, I would have Brogdon on the floor for basically all the non-Tatum minutes I could because the Celtics really struggled last year when Tatum came off the floor. So Tatum on the court last year, a 117.96 offensive rating, which is phenomenal, off the floor 107.98 rating. So that's essentially going from being better than the best offense in the league to a bottom five offense. And I feel like now Brogdon, this is like the perfect fit for this team, the perfect guy to fit in and sort of run the second unit and take over in the non-Tatum minutes, not in terms of what Tatum does from a scoring perspective, but be sort of that organizer. The other thing I notice about Brogdon is he puts pressure on the rim, right? He gets into the paint with these drives. So if you look at his numbers last year in terms of his drives, 18.3 drives per game, that was fourth in the NBA, 
9.5 points per game off drives. That was ninth in the NBA. 2.4 assists per game off his drives. That was fourth in the NBA. So those are really good numbers, especially for a Celtics team that was 13th in the NBA in drives per game and just 13th in points off drives. So you bring in a guy that we always reference like he could help to playmaking, he's versatile defensively and all that, but this is a weakness the Celtics had last year. They were not great in terms of driving the basketball, getting into the paint, and this is a guy that can certainly help when it comes to that. And even if you look at during the postseason, right, the Celtics in the finals where Jalen and Jason Tatum, a lot of this had to do with they had turnover issues, but the Celtics in the finals, they shot 40.2% of their drives, and they turned the ball over on 9% of their drives. The Knicks were last in the NBA at 44.3% in terms of percentage on their drives. Remember, the Celtics 40.2% in the finals. And the Rockets were last at 8.6%. And the Celtics, in terms of turning the ball over on their drives, the Celtics were at 9% in the finals. So just think about having that other guy, that other option that can handle the ball, that can run a pick and roll, that can beat his man off the dribble. The Celtics really needed that additional playmaker last year. They didn't have it. It just feels like this is the perfect fit. The other thing with him, if he's in the 87th percentile as a pick and roll ball handler, the Celtics were 15th in terms of their pick and roll operators last season. So he can run a pick and roll, which is something the Celtics desperately needed. He gets into the paint. He can finish at the rim and he can distribute. Like, as long as he can stay healthy, that's the big if with Brogdon because he had so many injuries. I cannot think of a better fit that this team could have brought in than Malcolm Brogdon based on what he does, right? Based on what we've seen and what his ability is, question is just going to be like so many of these Celtics, including Al Horford, Robert Williams, get these guys to the finish line, right? The one other note on the Celtics is this. So Grant Williams, I admit he does look like he's down 15 pounds. That's what we heard that he's down 15 pounds, he looks that way. I mean, last night, he had a crossover into a hesitation into a wrong foot layup. It's like, who the fuck is this guy? I've never seen that type of stuff from Grant before, right? He barely dribbles. He stands in the corner and he shoots threes. Not to diminish him as a player. He's a good player. He's a good defender. We know that he developed as a shooter. But just think about this. So no Rob, which means, and I chatted with Grandy briefly about this, we'll see a lot more Grant at center minutes. Grant last year, 41.1% 41.1% on threes, 46.9% on corner three, second in the NBA. Grant already is going to have a market. Now, the Celtics have not gotten a contract extension done with Grant. Sure, they're looking at 12 to 13. If I'm in Grant's camp, I'm looking for 15 or north of 15, just based on the fact that, well, I'm going to play closer to 30 minutes per game this year, right? If he's at 24.4 last year and you don't have Robert Williams, and you don't have a definite guy that's going to be the big after Al Horford, Grant Williams is going to play a lot more minutes, and the scoring average is going to go up. And if he can showcase the versatility in terms of playing more center, playing the four, we already know he can defend multiple positions, that contract number is going up for Grant Williams. That is one thing that has me sort of worried about the Celtics in terms of not this year, but going forward is Grant's going to get a big number. And in a weird way, not that... Grant's thinking about it from this perspective, but the Robert Williams injury, if it benefits anybody on the Celtics, it is certainly Grant Williams because he's going to get a lot more of those minutes. All right, we're going to be back with you on Sunday after the Patriots and the Lions. And if you want to leave a voicemail about any of the Bogart stuff, the Celtics stuff, or when you're watching the game on Sunday, you certainly can. The number is 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudi for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. 